This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Awesome Woodies. Awesome Woodies are the original portable hangboard company made by hand here in Australia. They were making these boards years before anyone else. Maybe you've seen their boards hanging off a cliff or a tree at your local crag. They're everywhere. And do you know why? Because they work. Nothing else is going to get you warmed up for your project like the cliff board will. No more shall you pull onto your project with unrecruited fingers. No more shall you burn precious skin doing extra warm-ups. The Awesome Woody's cliff boards are here for you. They love you and want you to be ready for a full day of awesomeness. Their cliff boards still lead the way with quality, durability and functionality. Plus they weigh almost nothing. Take the cliff board Petite for example, one I personally designed with the team. It weighs 280 grams. Mate, my Vegemite sandwich nearly weighs more than that. The cliff boards are also great if you don't have the ability to have a proper hangboard set up at your home. If you do have space for a fixed hangboard or campus board though, Awesome Woodies have got you covered. The Homeboy hangboard is the boss. The wood edges on this board are super comfortable to spend a lot of time hanging from, even when you've trashed yourself all weekend at the crag. Awesome Woodies can also cover your campus board with all the grips you need. Campus rungs in four different sizes, sloper rails and half balls. Everything is there for you to power up. Now for those of you into a minimal aesthetic or just like boning down, Awesome Woodies have got edgies. Pairs of 6, 8 and 10 mil edges made out of premium Tassie oak, which is sourced from sustainable plantations. So not only do these edges look the goods, they are doing good. In fact, all the Awesome Woodies products are made from sustainably sourced timber. Their commitment to the environment and quality really sets these guys apart from the rest. So head to awesomewoodies.com, chuck in Baffle Days at checkout for 15% off your next piece of game-changing equipment. G'day, g'day, and welcome to the Baffle Days podcast. My name is Tommy Halloran, and today's guest is Maddie Cope. She's an incredible climber from the UK. Uh, she's also a coach with Lattice Training, and she is a self-professed menstrual cycle enthusiast. We dig into all these different things in this chat, going into her ascent of freerider and her approach and mindset uh, toward going for that route. It's something that she says was definitely not in her wheelhouse, that Yosemite slicky granite kind of stuff and she really needed to step up and get the most out of herself to try and complete that dream route. We also dig into a bit around headspace and some fear and focus and tactics around that and a few cues that she uses to try and gain some focus while climbing in that kind of tricky terrain or even just where she needs to get the best out of herself. And also how she stays connected to the adventure and exploratory nature of climbing, um, which was really at her roots and, yeah, just how she stays connected to it in this day and age. By far and above, my favorite part of this conversation was when Maddie and Amanda dug into talking about the menstrual cycle. Amanda Watts, if you don't already know, has a master's degree in nutrition and dietetics and is an accredited sport dietitian and has a background in climbing and strength coaching. She works globally with climbers with their nutrition and health. 
And Maddie is one of the coaches over there at Lattice and very much getting involved in the research and the data collection that Lattice is very famous for. Uh, and so for me, sitting back and just listening to their two minds just unload all of that information was utterly incredible. Uh, and I think there is so much gold in there for all of us. Fellas, I very much encourage you to listen to gain some perspective on what half of the population is going through for more or less four decades of their life. Let's do our bit to be more understanding of what that whole cycle is about and things that we can do to be more helpful and supportive through that time. So without further ado, let's crack on into our awesome chat with Maddie Cope. Welcome to the Bath Days podcast. Um, tonight we're in the UK. Well, we're not. We're actually in the Blue Mountains in Australia in the rain, so it feels like we're in the UK. But we're talking to Madeleine Cope, Maddie Cope, who is a super awesome all-round climber and a coach with Lattice and a menstrual cycle enthusiast and, um, how would you put it, research gatherer just through the clients that she works with. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to her because I get to, we get to froth on climbing a little bit at the beginning before we go into the hormone stuff. Um, I get to talk to someone that boulders V10, climbs 8B plus trad and, um, has climbed big walls up to 8A. And, and for those not familiar with French, that's, uh, 32 on gear and yeah, up to about 29 on the big walls, free rider. And 8C sport. So um, I'm, yeah, I might try and um, get Maddie's tick list for myself, I think. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Maddie. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for having me. Um, it's pretty cool, isn't it, really, that you can be over there and I could be here in the UK and we get to sit down and have a conversation that we might not have otherwise. <laughs> we totally. Have, we've actually, Tom we've actually really... got sunny weather here today. Oh, so no way. It, it almost feels like I'm in Australia. <laughs> I think that all the Australian climbers will actually want you to take a photo of the sunny English weather to prove it to us so that we can post it onto the Baffle um, Instagram page. Yeah, it's don't worry, it's still rain. only like four degrees, so, you know, it's not oh. too tropical. <laughs> <laughs> That's freezing. Your uh, Ollie Tours partner, and we chatted with Ollie the other week, and you guys were on a lovely little French vacation uh, traveling through the south of France or, or wherever it is. It always just sounds nice seeing the south of France, uh, getting in some rock climbing time. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that trip? Yeah, um, myself and Ollie, we actually started off um, through to Italy. So we headed away from the UK and probably like many people, out there we were really excited to be able to get away climbing obviously that has not been as easy over the past couple of years so we headed off in in reginald that's our van um <laughs> i love a good car name <laughs> yeah and and actually interestingly i think like vessel names and cars they're meant to be named after they're usually female names aren't they but but he just he is a reginald so yeah <laughs> um and we headed off to italy and switzerland to do some granite climbing because that's a rock type that I I really love. It's, it's actually probably my favourite rock type. And the sort of rock type that I set a lot of my goals in, whether that's like specific goals or also, you know, just those process goals that 
get you to work towards the client type of climber you want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really cool. And we did some trad climbing and a a multi-pitch that was actually really one of the, probably one of the best multi-pitches I've ever done, which is pretty high praise. I have traveled and done you know, a lot of multi-pitches in a few different yeah. places like Yosemite and Squamish and Tagia um, and it was really amazing just from start to finish it was quite condensed in that um, you know I don't know where multi-pitch ends and big wall starts it was like nine pitches long whatever. I know because what Someone... is that I've, I've wondered that myself when is it a big wall and when's it a multi-pitch is it when it's is it about nine pitches that it turns into a big wall I have no idea. So I used to think that multi-pitch was something that I did in a day and that a big wall was something that I slept on and was, you know, was this sort of bigger effort. But then obviously now people climb what I would call a big wall in a day. People, you know, nip up the I've nose. I've done half and... dome twice in a day and that definitely felt like a big wall, not a multi-pitch. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. that's a good effort. I've done it once in a day. <laughs> That was quite enough. Oh, no, I should say, no, we didn't do two laps on it in a day. I've climbed it on two separate occasions in a day. That sounded like we did two laps. Oh, my God, that would have been exhausting. I remember staggering into Camp 4 after one lap of Half Dome. I cannot imagine doing two laps of it in a day. But maybe you and I should make that a goal that we could do two laps in a day. I always, yeah, it's a funny one with um well, multi-pitch slash big wall slash doing things in a day because I've always lent towards, um, I guess, difficulty for myself over speed. Um, And I don't know if that's a bit of a British thing because of the style of climbing we have here. I would say we have no big walls in England. <laughs> we barely even have a multi-pitch probably. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I usually think of a multi-pitch as something that I can climb in a day and a big wall as something that I sleep on, but I'm generally drawn towards experiences, whether they're on a multi-pitch or a big wall, that where the climbing is challenging for me and rather than as something where I choose to go really fast, I mean, that's probably a bit because I'm also not very good at going really fast. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, this multi-pitch that we did in um, San Lerto. So it's it's just in Switzerland, but it's, you know, kind of just over the border from Italy. They actually speak Italian there. Um, yeah, it was just amazing from start to finish and really condensed climbing, really powerful and burly and technical, you know, like steep corners and arrets. Um, and it even had this slightly sort of competition style move at the end of this 7C plus pitch where you had to kind of dynamically kind of, you know, windmill across a slab. <laughs> it felt so low percentage and it was the end at the end of this like 7C crack um, climb. And then you sort of went around this corner, you know, so you can't see your B layer and you're just committing to this move. And it was cool because we, we did it in a day on... Um, Ollie's birthday so we'd got been on the route before you know we'd we'd practiced the yep. um pitches we'd left the draws in the harder pitches and things like that um and then we went back on Ollie's birthday and we both sent it that was really good then we both oh, fell off the first perfect. pitch which was like the worst start to the day so it was like <laughs> the easiest pitch as well <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it lowered your expectations and then it frees you up to climb a bit more freely and so then you send yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I think we were both a bit tense, especially because the first pitch was quite technical and balancy, uh, especially right at the end of the pitch. So, you know, when you have that feeling like, I really don't want to fall there. Yeah. 
and you carry that tension and then you don't climb as well. So yeah, we were both much more relaxed. Um, and I think it was good that we both fell off it as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I think it could have brought some tension if only one of us had fallen off it and the other mm-hmm. person had to to redo it. That's obviously kind of an added layer of climbing a hard multi-pitch with, with someone mm-hmm. else. You'd, you'd end up with a, a Tommy and Kevin situation where one yeah, of you is just yeah. waiting. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, you know, this wasn't such a big project as that. But, <laughs> but, but definitely, I think you it's this balance, isn't it? Because you're like, want to be really psyched for the other person, and you are, but it's also about, you, you also have this very sort of selfish desire to want to mm. climb the route and to climb it as sort of easily as possible for yourself. Mm. Um it's yeah, a funny I, one I think... too. I, I find like you know, having done a few multi pitches, you you don't really warm up. You're just at the base of it, and you're like, "All right, cool, let's go." And, and so you're kind of just pulling on stone cold to what could be a, a hard pitch, and you need to get your head into gear, and you've got this huge wall above your head, and it's like, "All right, strap on, let's go." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be quite daunting. I think. I think it definitely. When I first climbed either multi-pitches or big walls. <laughs> I think <laughs> I definitely had to go through a different process of zooming in and chunking, I guess it would you would call it, you know, like really having to take each pitch at a time, each move at a time. It's quite overwhelming to think about, you know, that pitch up there, like some that where you're not. And obviously if you're focusing on that, you're not focusing on the pitch that you're on right now and suddenly everything becomes much harder. That was definitely the case with Freerider and the monster pitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I wanted to jump into that actually when Tom mentioned Yosemite then. So Freerider is something you did now. How long ago was that? Maybe three, three years ago? Oh, it was actually longer than that ago, I think now. This is oh, one of those wow. horrible moments where you realise yeah. that you're getting older. <laughs> <laughs> what was um, that? Had you planned to go and try and go ground up, flash every pitch or onside every pitch? Like, what was your approach for Freerider and how did it go? I I had planned to go um, to go there and go ground up. So um, we had planned to haul to heart ledges, uh, which for people who don't know is, oh, I don't know how many pitches up. Uh, you haul, you jog up a separate line to some ledges, bring your bags up to there. Then you go down to the ground and spend a night on the ground or or whatever and then you set off from the floor but you you climb and you climb a slightly different line called free blast which is mm. I think it's essentially just the first oh, like 14-ish pitches of um free rider and then you you sort of arrive at your bags pick them up and and start the um slower process of hauling and climbing um, yep. and sleep a couple of nights on the route but Freerider was something that I had wanted to do for a really long time. Actually, I think it probably still stands out as something, a route that I've climbed that I had really thought about for kind of years before. I, d- I think a lot of the other climbs that I have done that I guess are um, at the harder end for me, I kind of maybe came upon them by chance a little bit or you know I might have thought oh that looks like a cool route yeah I'll try that one um but yeah so freerider was actually something um probably like the most premeditated would I say route for me in that I had been to Yosemite before um but but not climbed on El Cap and done a number of other day routes um 
found the style really hard. I think I really found it a bit of a love-hate relationship, but that really drew me towards it because I I don't know, you guys haven't climbed in the UK for, for people who haven't. It's quite a, it's like a lot of wall climbing. So like face holds, little crimps, kind of technical, you know, you can dance around. Obviously there is more thrutchy roots, but when you go to Yosemite, there is such burl and you really need to attack pitches and climb with pace you know Mm -hmm. people climb a pitch really quickly these crack climbs and it was it was essentially everything that I was really not good at in climbing (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome and you go decide to do a very big wall wall. (laughs) and so I think because of that it was this thing that I never imagined I would do and then when I rocked up planning hoping to climb it it yeah definitely felt like one of those quite standout moments where you think oh wow I can actually like do some of these things Um, did you know that it was going to be such an anti-style before you got there or or, or did you yeah (laughs) well so So, I've been to Yosemite before so so not every pitch on Freerider is an anti-style to me not every pitch in Yosemite yeah but um that the rock that's on El Cap, that really quite glacier-worn, you know, like slippy granite. I'm really used to having more friction, more edges. I'm good at standing on edgy footholds. Yeah, and not like, slick, slick polished. No, footholds. not slick. And like, I'm good at like crimpy wall climbing, especially where the crimps are like Gaston's or undercuts. It's just the style that I've done a lot of and that I started out on, I think. And, and I really enjoy it. You know, I enjoy that style. But I think in that sort of slippy Yosemite granite, I just found a a really different challenge that I think I hadn't faced before. And I think what's really nice about getting on El Cab or, or any multi-pitch that challenges you style-wise is you can't shy away from any pitch. If you if you want to climb the whole thing, you do have to climb every pitch. And Whereas there's going to be a pitch UK, that doesn't suit you at all. So you're yeah, just going to so have to UK, climb something. Loads of, yeah, there's loads of pictures that don't suit me that probably are this stretchy, slippy style, but I don't go and do them because mm. <laughs> I've just got all this other climbing that I would probably prefer. So I, I think I really liked that as a challenge. And I think it goes back to those process goals. I really, I think often people want what they don't have, right? So I really want to, I'm really driven and motivated to get better at moving quickly, really trusting my um intuition on where to put my feet rather than looking for edges to put your feet on um and crack climbing so yeah I think that L cap and freerider just provided all of those things that I wanted to challenge myself on was there a pitch that was um the awful pitch or um that took a little bit more work I mean is the monster off with is that the one yeah so I actually was it, it, it's a funny because a lot of the pitches on freeride are actually you know quite easy they're not they're not super hard so I only fell off the boulder problem pitch uh so I didn't flash wrong like that I, I fell off it I worked it and then and then climbed it and I fell off the down climb into the monster so it was funny I was so um sort of worried about the monster off width pitch the off width bit but it's actually got this down climb into it that's 11d I think that's like 7a but but it's like this sort of funny yeah like undercut smeary feet and then a really long move to actually just reach the crack 
And you know, when you're so focused on a part of the pitch, I totally didn't envisage this bit being so hard. So I actually, I actually fell off there because it's quite like a span to the crack. So I, I fell off and, you know, you sort of really swing down under the belay. I had to jug back up and then did that second go. But those were actually the only two places that I fell off. So um, I, I guess in that sense, no pitch took loads of working, but the monster pitch definitely took a lot of effort in the moment. And really the it, it's got this added element that because it's so long, the higher you get up a route, you're often thinking, oh, nice, I, I'm in here, you know, I'm, I'm getting closer to the top. Whereas on a big wall, the higher you get up a pitch and the more fatigued you're getting, you're sort of thinking, gosh, if I fall off here, I have to redo all of this today. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than maybe your project at the sport cliff where you think, oh, yeah, I'm getting higher up. This is great. Even if I fall off, I've got the I've, I've got the confidence that I can get this high up this route. Uh, yeah, so I think that is what you really have to try. Well, what I had to really try and drown out, I think, and just mm. um, really hone in on like each move that you do. And it's so funny because each move you do is practically the same. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite fatiguing in itself. I remember um, in the Grampians, is it Eureka Wall? There's um, Pythagoras' theorem and Archimedes' principle or something, a, a wall that's closed now and we're not allowed to go to, unfortunately. But the the climbing like the holds are sort of all on this angle and it's really super fun climbing to begin with. But as you get higher up the route, you're like, oh, just give me a hold that faces a different direction because your feet are sore and your hands are sore and you just want to put your hands in a different position. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I guess we might touch a little bit on the mental side of climbing and some of the techniques we might use to deal with fear or feeling overwhelmed or things like that. But what I found on a pitch like the monster off with is that a lot of those techniques I had developed are sort of have been built around British trad climbing. So I think I'm really good when I get to a resting point. I'm really good at calming myself down, assessing the situation, you know, looking for gear, like keeping my body relaxed. But that doesn't really work in the monster or on a lot of granite because there is no rest. You're not at a rest, you're just at the next move, which is the same as the next move and the next move. And really the best thing that you can do is just keep moving. But I think my natural tendency is to stop and try and calm myself down and relax and yeah, and you're obviously fighting so hard to just stay in the same spot that yeah, I felt like I definitely had to develop a slightly new technique there, um, which I I I found really fun. Yeah, I think that'd be, it's an interesting thing that I can try and pick your brain and Tom's brain at the moment about because, you know, having a little bit of a break from climbing when I had my daughter and then your mental load's a bit bigger after you're juggling um, as a child who's now seven. So you'd think I would have it nailed by now mentally. But anyway, um, throw, throw Tom going to the Olympics in. I'll use that as an excuse as well. Mental load was high. Um, but I find that on hard sport routes. You know, I'm because I like I grew up climbing on granite initially and trad climbing was how I started aside from being in a gym. So you kind of teach yourself to you're climbing between sections and then you're regrouping on rests or which granite in WA was what I started climbing on with. You know, you've got generally a good enough foot and a good enough crimp and you could just crimp anything. 
Um, but, you know, hard, steeper trad routes and not trad routes, sport routes, you've just got to keep moving. And I think, um, you know, from what Ollie's told me about you, you've got a very good head. And Tom um, sitting next to me has one of the best heads in the business as well, just really good above anything, doesn't sit in that fear state very much. So what are the techniques you two have? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of always interesting one, isn't it? Talking about fear above like bolts or gear um, because I do get scared. Like interestingly, I think, okay, I know you talk about sort of British people being kind of like downplaying everything, but I don't know whether <laughs> I'm that good necessarily at being not fearful like I do get fear but I think what I've worked on a lot and what I think I am good at is focusing on what I'm doing and staying as relaxed as possible so it may may sound subtle but I like I climb with some people and they're literally just never afraid of falling it's kind of not a, a thing to them we've got those people in the UK you know they just go out they try things they fall off it's it seems not to factor into their climbing as much, whereas I don't put myself in that category. Like I do get scared and I have to work on it at times, but I think I've just, say when I climb with Ollie, I think I've just worked on it for quite a long time now that I found these things that really work for me. And often what I've found is really working on my focus of what I'm doing rather than necessarily being not scared of falling like that's what the experience feels like I'm not climbing and thinking oh gosh you know I'm just not scared of falling what I'm thinking is wow I am totally immersed in the climbing I'm doing I have complete trust in my ability here I am feeling certain in my movements um and obviously they both play into each other so I I do do fall practice and it's something I've done for a while actually the multi-pitch that me and Ollie went on I hadn't climbed anything like that for a long time. And I always think it's an interesting exercise because I'm not super scared. So I'm not like shaking. I don't really get all these cues from my body that say you are really um, out of your comfort zone. But I usually say, okay, I've not done this for a while. I'm going to do some fall practice. And then when that comes around, I think, whoa, actually just letting go here does not feel as comfortable as I would want it to feel. And I don't feel as calm about it as I would like. So I'm going to do this a few times and I'm going to build it up a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I think my techniques definitely have sat more in the area of focus and really um, kind of trying to. I suppose, drop out of focus the fall um, rather than always getting comfortable with the falling. I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear um, your yeah. your take on that, Tom. Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's fairly similar for me too. I, I think that anyone that is actually not scared of falling is an idiot, basically, <laughs> and that they're buying a, a lotto ticket in the, the raffle of hurting themselves pretty badly. Like if you, if you're not aware of what's going on and you just blase to a degree you're gonna hurt yourself and yeah I, I guess for me like I still can feel myself get um you know the heart race kind of move up a little bit but you you take a moment take a breath and and yeah trust what you're doing and I think one of the things I like to do is uh pretend that the bolt or the the bit of gear is right next to you 
And like the amount of people that I see that are totally gripped and pumped out of their brains and they get up to that hold and they try and clip and then suddenly they let themselves relax. They're in no different physical shape, but their mental space has shifted because they feel slightly more comfortable with that bolt being at shoulder height now rather than two or three meters below them. And so I think that's an interesting one for people could kind of play with is just pretend the bolt is there. You still need to be aware that, you know, you may be in a position where you need to think about how you're going to fall off or, or whatever. Like don't, don't be a doofus. Um, just an interesting one to kind of play with and, and focusing on what you can control and, and just the climbing so I guess for you two, for everyone that's listening that um, finds it difficult on days to to get up their breath under control and get that relaxed state, like are there any, when you can feel yourself going out of being more focused, are there any little cues that you have? Like do you have a, you know, feel your feet on the holds or concentrate on your breathing or, you know, rearrange your fingers on the holds? Like are there any little cues that you have or is it just so automatic these days that it's not that conscious? Yeah, no, it's definitely that conscious. And um, I've tried a few different things, which I definitely encourage everyone to do because you obviously never know what works the best for you. Um, I actually, when I first started getting a bit more into the mental side of climbing in a more structured way, shall we say, like, you know, really looking into it rather than maybe what I just developed more organically through climbing, um, I did some meditation and I used a guided meditation app um it was the sam harris app yes i um, love it i have it on my phone tom has it on his it's awesome Very waking up yeah yeah waking up that's it waking up um and it's i one thing i really liked about his lessons and again this is probably quite personal for who people might respond well to is that he he sort of went through um a number of different senses that you might look to focus on and he really talked about um the other thing he really talked about was this observing approach to your emotions and the way you felt in a given moment and those two things I found really useful so from the senses point of view um as you worked through the lessons there was maybe focusing on breath and then there was maybe focusing on the sensation of your body in space and there was focusing on sound and you know um you could try out the different things just in this meditation practice and at the time I was actually trying mind control um so well uh, aptly named route and mind control is a really long route so it is a sport route it's obviously not unsafe um but it is quite a long route so you're on it for quite a long time you've got these rests and basically um the move that I was falling off was really near the top. So you've put in a lot of effort. And then it was this move that just really, I mean, people might have seen it. It's that sort of rollover move. And it just really required you to be relaxed and commit to it. And um, yeah, so I wanted to obviously arrive there as fresh as possible, which meant holding on as as only, you know, as little as possible till I got there, being really relaxed. Um, and I did find that... Um, the sensation of like the chalk in my hands. So I find I find breath really useful, calming that down um, and focusing on that, like either the feeling of it against my harness, um, you know, you've obviously got that more like touch sensation or the sound of it as well. So I'd often like breathe in a way that was a bit more audible, you know, that kind of 
like sighing type thing so that I could hear it. Um, but also the feel of chalking up like on my hands. So I'd like put my hand in my chalk bag and then I'd kind of rub it a bit between my fingers, you know, so you just like get that feeling of touch on your your hand. Um, and that, and this depends a bit on rock type, but mind control is quite grainy in a way that it's that gray, quite rough rock with tufas. So I often think like really looking at like that uh, detail on holds um, is quite useful. And all of those things just reduce your distraction and provide you this thing to focus on. And then actually your body just works quite automatically because you allow it to. You're not um, sort of bombarding yourself with different thoughts or anything like that. Um, and I guess the more observing side of things is what I found useful for thinking about my expectations on the route, you know, how I was feeling about a certain day I'd had on it, you know, whether that I probably hadn't done it or, um, and I think that observing nature where you think, I think it really allowed me to be very curious with it. You know, it's like, oh, huh, I fell off there. I'm frustrated. That's interesting, probably because I'm frustrated because I've fallen off there a few times. Okay, what am I going to do about it? You know, you're asking rather yourself than getting caught up in observing, the yeah, yeah, like you rather than really feeling very in it. Um, I don't know. That's how he describes it. It's obviously hard mm. for me to describe because I'm no, I think you've I think you described that really well. No, I think that's I think there's some really awesome little bits in there for people. I think you, yeah, that I, makes. I, good I think sense. too, like using those sorts of techniques, I've used it as just this way of uh, detaching from being in that red point headspace for a moment. Even if it is just for a moment, if you're on a short rest or if you're on a longer route, it, it's um, it can be you know a mental fight, a mind control exercise uh, as much as a physical kind of thing. And yeah, just to to step away from the moment, like I've had kids' TV like Peppa Pig theme song running through my head, um, and, and all sorts of other little bits and pieces, like just having a break basically. So then you're like, okay, cool. Yep. Time to go. I have a few sort of like deep breaths to kind of, um, get myself aroused basically and get back into it. And then it's like, boom, let's go business time. And you, it kind of feels like you're jumping into it fresh again. Yeah. Like it's, it's interesting. One of the things you said there kind of reminds me of a phrase that I really like. Um, and that is to like, hold your goals lightly. And I don't know if that came from Sam Harris or, or maybe somewhere else, but it's it sounds like a tricky concept because obviously we're climbers. We want to be really motivated and really psyched to achieve your goal. But ultimately, being really psyched to do something also provides you with this alternate outcome, which is to be really not psyched if you don't do it. <laughs> and, um, you know, and that's often where like, Frustrations come in um, and people being quite negative upon themselves or their performance. So something I have and, tried to do more recently is to, yeah, you, you hold your goal lightly. So I guess it's that, oh, yeah, no, I do, do really want to do this thing. But also if I don't, it does not mean my identity as a person is completely like cracked. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, and I and think you carry awesome. that weight up with you. Like I, I experienced that a couple of years ago on a project where you're physically capable of doing it, but the, the weight of it on your shoulders because you just want it so badly just wrecks you in every way possible. So, yeah, I think that's a brilliant. That was kind of the, 
not as poetic, but just needing to just let go a little bit of the outcome mm. was yeah. um, my key in making a bit of a breakthrough. Yeah, which is why I think like when people, I think I've put a lot of thought because um, I've had some bad times on roots <laughs> for sure. Really scared, you know, terrible time, meltdown, tears. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think through those experiences, I've tried to be more honest with myself about why I'm trying a certain route. Mm. Um, and I guess this boils down to like external, internal motivations. And, you know, external motivations are fine. I'm not saying they're like a bad thing at all. Um, but I think having quite that, an honest view of why you're trying a given route and then really holding in your mind the ones that are very intrinsic to you, I think helps um with that because I guess I try to find routes that provide a challenge to me that is beyond sending the route itself you know like when I talk about LCAP it's like that pace you know climbing at that pace like being intuitive with my feet on that sort of granite or um and that way I think you can you're always working towards this climber that you want to be um, and you're keeping those values in mind of what you think climbing gives you and then I think it does take some of the pressure of just sending the route itself. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And I found I, that, that useful. That, that's utterly brilliant. hundred percent. Where does, I think what, sorry, you go. I was just going to say one thing through coaching. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, um, Amanda, you work in nutrition, you work with people and, um, a, a lot of people in climbing maybe work in coaching, um, and something I find has been that has been really beneficial for my own climbing from coaching is the emphasis you have in a lot of your life on other people's achievements and supporting other people. Um, and that's something that I really like at the crag and which is really great about climbing so much with Ollie, my partner, obviously someone I really care about, um, is I usually, if I feel like I'm getting a bit sucked into my own performance, I often try and like outsource that energy and be really, I find being really um, supportive to others, really asking others about their project at the crag, um, say on the floor, you know, if I'm feeling frustrated or anxious about my route, I find that directing that energy um, in a more positive way to others can, it feels like it takes the the pressure away, away from me. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I've used that as a tool a lot of times, I think, I think, yeah, um, Sometimes I think I can go a bit far the other way where I get a bit too absorbed in other people's processes at the cliff. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't have to get on my route. I'll just support these guys. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's really awesome too. Where does uh, that kind of exploratory side of climbing fit in with you? Like you and Hazel went to Mongolia a couple of years ago, just totally off the beaten track somewhere that I'd never really heard of climbing. And you're both just out there in a van looking for new bits of rock to climb. Like that sounds like such an incredible and wildly different trip. Yeah, I, I actually think that exploratory nature in my climbing has been there from really early on. And actually, I think it's probably got more, what would you say? Not not muddied, that's not the right word, but you know, it, it's sort of gone a lost. little bit more out of focus yeah like a bit a bit more lost maybe a bit more out of focus Diluted. as I have also become interested in pushing myself more physically say on red points or on um hard multi-pitches or bouldering 
I think I got when I started climbing it was really about trad climbing for me and it it was more about adventure and it was exploratory and it was all on sighting you know I, I never it wasn't it was a long time before I red pointed or head pointed anything and so actually that trip was really cool because I felt like I'd come full circle back to something that was really what drew me to climbing in the first place but I came back to it with a whole host of different skills that I developed from the other things you know I I think I've developed lots of skills through red pointing and bouldering that I can now apply in that scenario and just a different level of confidence as well um so yeah, that was a really cool trip. I mean, there's a reason you haven't heard that much about climbing in Mongolia and it is because <laughs> the climbing was not that good. In, I mean, it was an amazing place, really cool trip, but it was actually just the rock quality we found um, quite challenging. But It was uh, actually the first time I'd ever heard of the term scrittily. It's a real British thing, apparently. I've, I've now heard it quite a few times in the British. Little, what does it mean? Just shit rock (laughs) (laughs) Um, it sort of means it's like um the american term is kitty litter i think oh yes so you it means you you like have the rock um like the granite but it was really coarse big grains so then you know you sweep down the granite and just loads of kitty litter falls off you know lots of little bits of the granite yep yep sounds super fun (laughs) yeah it's um I, i think it's funny that I guess that's kind of one of the things that draws a lot of us in in the first place is that sense of exploration and it does get lost when you start going down that road of fingerboarding and and a more physical pursuit and um, I feel myself so drawn to uh, I guess what feels like more of a wholesome and uh, rewarding trip in a way to go and just get off the beaten track and do something like that. I think so, what you mean is an adventure. It's an adventure. I think It in, sounds so beautiful. In, in 2022, you know, with um, mobile phones and everything else that we have, I mean, everything's reported instantly and I think trying to find that real spirit of adventure in your trips and, and stuff, it, it's just a bit diluted compared to what it was 20 years ago now. So I think somewhere like Mongolia, getting to watch the movie, although the rock quality may not have been good, it was just, yeah, it was refreshing to just see an adventure. Yeah, and it feels a bit more like a playground, I guess, is what that trip felt like a bit. And you just kind of like, you're back to being kids again. I, You know, I guess that's part of what the adventure, that bit in climbing. It's like you you feel a bit more like a, a kid. You don't have maybe the same like um, constraints on the situation that maybe you have in red pointing or training or pushing yourself physically so it does feel very free and I think that that is really great and it's something I really value in climbing and it does get harder because the problem is I do also value pushing myself physically I mean I work in the world of training and in all honesty like I love training I would train if it made me no better at climbing like I I, you know like just doing pull-ups and eking out a final one I find that really satisfying I know I'm the same I like training for training I like training for climbing and yeah, it's funny because if you've got seven days in a week and you want to train, maybe do some trad, maybe do a multi-pitch and do some sport, there's not enough days in the week to fulfil all of those things. There's not enough yeah. commanders in the and, world. And it's sort of, it, I think it's great to have that diversity and I, I love that I have entered into that 
um, realm. Like I know a lot of people who maybe started out a similar way to me and they sit in this camp that's very much like, red pointing's boring, I get bored after two tries on a route and I'm like, all right, you, you, I mean, that's fine if that's what you want, but you might be missing out. And, um, you know, I don't want to miss, I think it gives you something very different to work on one route that's really hard for you, but I would never want to completely let go of the adventure I get from on-siting um, and, you know, those values that I really saw in climbing when I started out. And I, I often feel it, actually, if I am starting to really lack it. I, I feel a frustration building and it, I sort of started to try and notice those signs when I, I need to go and give myself like some adventure. <laughs> I, Amanda's sitting here nodding her head. I think she's felt that for two years of the Olympics. Now. Like, oh, my gosh, I just, yes. I like. I need to go and do everything all at once, and um, all it does is rain at the moment. So I couldn't be more frustrated at the moment. <laughs> and then I get to see pictures, like uh, because of the lockdowns and different things, and you know the different commitments you set yourself up for. You'll see pictures on Instagram of everyone at Mount Buffalo over Christmas, and Mount Buffalo's got really interesting granite cl- trad climbing and a, a project that I really want to try and finish down there. Um, and a multi-pitch yep Um, which you'd probably like to try and just do really quickly like on site (laughs) Um, I can give you a belay Um, yeah so seeing everyone down there you're like oh god can I just get in a car but I I have to say one thing I'm quite envious of you having people like Hazel to go and climb with because it is tricky you know I love climbing with Tom but we have a seven-year-old that needs to be looked after as well. And it is it can be tricky, I think, as a girl sometimes to find a partner that's interested in the things you're interested in. So finding a girl that wants to go and try a, you know, above grade 25 or a, a grade 28 crux trad pitch on a route, there's not, it's slim picking sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm probably quite lucky in, I guess, my you know my bubble here in that I have um been able to you know I mean Hazel's just a great friend so obviously it's always fun to go climbing with her but actually it's quite interesting she was there you know by the time I started climbing uh, basically I started climbing with a boyfriend and that boyfriend was friends with Hazel so I met Hazel through through him and she was obviously already just this completely confident and really accomplished climber and yeah it's been really cool being able to now like go climbing with her she's like she's definitely like been there over the course of of my climbing and um yeah we've been friends for a long time now so I think it's it's always great to be able to go climbing with someone but in all honesty I think the majority of my climbing that I do is is also well especially now with with Ollie and I do think that's really nice too um there's also another girl here in the UK called Emma Twyford so I've done a few climbs with her and which is nice as well um yeah I I do think it gives you something different to for me to go climbing with like maybe Hazel or or Emma um and like that sort of maybe that you have a somewhat similar style and you can share maybe the experience a little bit more but I think actually I find it really interesting going climbing with Ollie because I mean, some people are say like, oh, opposites attract with you two, don't they? Because we're like, we're so different. And yet we can climb similar, you know, we can go and really share these experiences and 
set similar the same goals and go and climb things together and actually I think that's been been really interesting and good for your climbing I think it's always good to watch someone who climbs very differently to you Mm, yeah it's yeah your your trip to Switzerland that you're talking about before sounded pretty amazing and talking to Ollie a little bit about that um when we were chatting after we recorded the podcast with him yeah sounded like a pretty magic um trip that one um, so maybe talking about girls, maybe we should head into um, the sort of area of interest for both of us. So I guess um, for me as a um, sports dietitian working with climbers, I get asked a lot about what people can do nutritionally around their cycle and what can help their performance and what can help them just feel better. And I'm guessing as a coach, you get that a lot also. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um I guess for me, it probably goes back actually, well, quite a lot of years now. Um, but it all started with um, Red S. Do you, do you call it Reds? We, we've chatted about yeah. this a little bit before the conversation started. Um, and so it kind of, the question started a little bit more from a health perspective. But yeah, like you, they have now sort of expanded out into the realms of performance and, and being informed on the menstrual cycle when it comes to training and climbing. Yeah, definitely. And I think even just feeling the freedom to talk about it when you're at the cliff and, you know, be able to say to your partner loudly enough for them to hear and maybe someone else might hear at the cliff, I've got my period, I'm not feeling it. I don't actually think I can try this today. And that being a really acceptable and normal thing to have um, put out there in the open. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I think the sort of first uh, step and the thing that sort of underlies all the information and forms this foundation of um, all the information about the menstrual cycle that's out there now with respect to climbing performance and, and sport in general is that destigmatization de- because I think it's been a long time where people have not felt comfortable talking about it and it has not been acknowledged in climbing and training, even though it may impact people's performance or training or well-being or enjoyment. Um, and yeah, so I think what we hopefully will find is it's my sort of thinking that that could be quite powerful in itself um, in actually changing that culture around it. People might start to feel actually like it impacts on them a little bit in a less negative a way because they feel more comfortable talking about it and like you said they can they can seek support from people you can talk about it at the crag you can go and you don't feel nervous to say oh I, I need to go and like change my sanitary um you know whatever sanitary choice people make at the crag someone can watch your back whilst you like go and do that um and so I think that's a really exciting place for us to be right now and hopefully it reduces the barriers for you know women or people with cycles to come into climbing as a sport. Mm, definitely. I'm going to make a complete generalisation. <laughs> and I, I think um, like my experience as a boy growing up and, and learning about that kind of stuff, basically all I understood of the menstrual cycle was, oh, yeah, you end up bleeding for a few days and that's it. And then when you're not, you can kind of have a baby sometime afterwards. And, and like. <laughs> that's all you get and as a 13 year old boy being like holy shit you're bleeding that's gross I don't want to hear about that and (laughs) and that's it and and so you're like 
from the beginning is so woefully misinformed and as took more than 10 years to actually find out really much more about it and it, it's 10 years from 13 no we had Audrey before that so few yeah, less years, it probably but, yeah. but you know it, it's just um yeah the, the lack of uh information around it is, is hard and I guess like as women far out like you've got half the population that doesn't know really what's going on in terms of the men not understanding the, the female um, process. Yeah, that, yeah. And I mean, I that's think a really that's, hard thing to, to work with. Yeah. And I definitely think it's something that everyone should know about. Um, and I think what you said there is maybe a bit of a good um, segue into just giving a bit of an overview of the menstrual cycle and what we're talking about. Because what you said was like, oh, you, you learn about this um, phase of bleeding, you know, the period or menstruation. And I think when you take a step back and you learn about the whole menstrual cycle, I think a big takeaway is that it is much more than just a period. And for, I guess, everyone out there who could go and look up a textbook diagram there's there's lots of ones out there if you type the menstrual cycle into google you tend to get this diagram that shows these different phases of the menstrual cycle and there's usually these wiggly lines that essentially represent the changing hormone levels throughout that cycle um it'll often be 28 days though in reality this can actually be quite different individual to individual um I can never quite keep up with what they say they expect as normal. That is I like think quotations. it was, I know. It's like I think 25, I've, 26 to 32 or something like that. I think it's up to 35 actually. I think it might be 24 to 35 was the general range of a cycle for people. Yeah. So over the time that I've looked into this, it's generally got broader, which is often the way things go. <laughs> so what they find to be healthy, I guess, or normal has has expanded. And so sits definitely way outside of just that 28 day cycle. But an important feature is that day one is the first day of bleeding. Um, so that would uh, be when someone's period starts. And at that point, the hormones estrogen and progesterone are low. And over the first part of the cycle, which is usually either called the follicular phase or the low hormone phase, estrogen rises, but progesterone stays low. So that's the feature of that first phase. And estrogen rises and then at some point in the cycle, so in your textbook cycle, it'll be in the middle, but this is not necessarily the case. There will be, uh, ovulation will occur. So estrogen rises and it stimulates ovulation. It then actually falls um, quite sharply after ovulation um, before both estrogen and progesterone rise in this um, sort of second half or phase of the cycle. And that's usually called the luteal phase or the high hormone phase. Um, and then at the, the end of that phase is, is essentially the start of your next period. And obviously the cycle continues on and on like that um, for years yeah, and you, years and years for years and years hundreds and hundreds <laughs> you you can calculate how many you'll have if you take sort of maybe like 51 is kind of the average age of the menopause <laughs> and it's a lot <laughs> that's why we should learn about it because it's not going anywhere anytime soon yes um and I think um 
I think it'd be uh, Maddie and I have, have talked a little bit prior to this podcast about the research that's out there. And, you know, people, I know people want to black and white answers when it comes to cycles and when's the best time to train and how you're going to feel and when's the time you're least going to get injured. Um, and there are some generalizations in the research, but the caveats with the research are that we need to look at whether the research was done in strength training or if it was looking at aerobic exercise, if it was looking at just lower limb, which often it is the sample size. So whether it was 13 women that were doing a box jump, for example, or if they were doing squats and then looking at their perception of effort and the changes in measured strength and all those sorts of things. So when we're looking at research, we need to keep all of those sorts of things in mind and Maddie and I will talk a little bit about the generalizations that are out there and then about Maddie's experience that she comes across with coaching a lot of women. Yeah, definitely. I think you've summed that up really well. Um, I, th- I think probably working at Lattice and starting to explore this area of the menstrual cycle and try and create some helpful resources around it and, and try and create some climbing specific content around it um i think has been obviously taken a lot of navigating of the research and more anecdotal things that we've seen um i have actually yet to see a body weight dependent study done um so a lot of studies are obviously very singular in what they look at like you said they might look at strength or balance or power, or anaerobic output, or, you know, all these things, and use quite basic exercises, and climbing is so much more complex than that, a little bit like what we've been talking about with, say, the mental side, and so that's where I think the research can be good for ideas, Um, and actually a type of study that has been done less, but I guess is quite interesting to us as climbers and definitely me as a coach is more of an intervention study so as you said Amanda obviously a lot of those ones you talked about they're these like one-off performance studies like what they are looking for is does the performance in this modality change across one menstrual cycle is often what they look at and you know even in just saying that you can see the number of limitations if we're wanting to extrapolate this out to practical advice Um, But one of the types of studies that's out there looks at actually the distribution of training across a menstrual cycle. Um, And essentially it looks at either focusing a bit more training in that first half of the cycle, that low hormone phase that I talked about, versus focusing it in the second half of the cycle, that luteal phase. And the outcome of that for uh, this strength training intervention that they did was actually the athletes with the more focus on training in the first half of their cycle showed a better um, strength gain outcome. Um, So I I think that's something that's really interesting when we're actually looking to make decisions, not really just for one cycle, but you know, for many cycles in a row versus a lot of the studies that look at this one-off event in one menstrual cycle. I think one thing that I was thinking when we were chatting earlier about this stuff was um, when... I mean, because if you look at the follicular phase, let's say day one to 14, so day one being the first day of bleeding, and they talk about, you know, that first half of your phase being the time that you load a bit more training in, for example. But at what point, at what point do they 
start that in the studies because you know if you've got a heavy you've got heavy bleeding and on say day three of your cycle then that might not be a day that you want to start it start that sort of heavy training so are they talking do you when and when you're working with athletes are you talking say get the bleeding part out of the way until it gets light so maybe that's day one to day four of your cycle it's a bit lighter or others are the heavier strength training days happening through that first part as well so that's where I think you make the distinction between um, a study which will have to apply a blanket protocol to everyone. That, well, it, it wouldn't have to, but they often do. But they're going to, um, yeah. <laughs> but it's going to. Um, versus an individual approach, which, for example, we can do with people at Lattice or that I've experimented a lot um, of what works for me, for example. So in a study, they'll take day it of Obviously, day one of bleeding is a really useful marker um, to say this is the start of your follicular phase um, because it does include menstruation. So I I don't know off the top of my head, but most likely I think they would have started it then. So people would have had to train whether they were on their period um, for three days or five days. And, you know, that would have just been um, the way it went. Some people actually feel fine once they've started their period. They actually feel like they train quite well. Um, I think what's actually tricky with those studies is defining and monitoring accurately when ovulation occurs Mm. so that you know exactly actually when the transition into the second half of the cycle um, happens um, so that you can actually make that distinction about when to focus training such that it is in the follicular phase Um, because cycle phase verification is something that is really expensive to do accurately for people doing studies so they often use day counting for example I start my my period on day one and they might day count to day 14 and just sort of say okay you've ovulated now but I may have ovulated five days previously I also might not have ovulated yet especially depending on the length of the cycle um so that aside because that's obviously more like in the realms of academia which I will sort of emphasize is not my area um but for, just to interject there, people can, and I mean, I did it just because I was interested because I was doing a bunch of professional development about women's cycles and, and sports nutrition stuff and performance. And so I bought some ovulation kits, which I'm sure everybody who came to our house thought that we were trying to get pregnant, but we weren't. I just <laughs> was cycle tracking. I wanted to see when I ovulated and doing that, getting a good three months or um, like they're expensive. So, you know, from a cost point of view, six months would be much better to do but also remembering to pee on a thing for a few days. You know, some months you can just forget. But that is an option for people, isn't it? They can try and work out when they ovulate over an average of six months and then that'll help to work out, you know, do you have a really short follicular phase, which, I mean, I often do. I have 10 days before I ovulate um, and then I've got a 26-day cycle. So, you know, if I've, so when I'm planning my training around that stuff, it's, you know, I've got a shorter phase to look at. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and interestingly, I've actually done the same and bought the ovulation sticks and probably people coming around were like, oh, right, maybe they're trying to have a baby. Um, but I also found that I actually just forgot quite a lot. Um, but yes, it is something to, that people could do. Um, and I know we'll get on to more of the approach someone could take in terms of tracking to understand their cycle. Um, but that is something to be aware of when tracking is that if you use an app or something it will probably predict it to be on a certain day unless you give it information um otherwise 
But back to the point I know you said um, about that study that's looking to distribute training and like, would they do it maybe in the first two days of the cycle, which would be menstruation and potentially obviously could come with certain symptoms. And um, once you start to work on an individual basis, it's really great because that doesn't matter. Because if someone's experiencing symptoms on those days such that they don't feel like either they don't feel like they want to train or they don't just feel like their highest intensity of training is accessible, um, then you can literally just work around that. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting too because looking at some of the other research, um, the uh, maybe maybe some of those gains, the strength gains by training through that half first half of your cycle also come from that like testosterone peak that you get just before you ovulate or when you ovulate, which, you know, helps sort of, I guess, amplify, amplify, you know, how do you say it? Like you've got a testosterone surge. Testosterone helps you to get stronger um, and we don't have heaps of it as women. So I wonder if there's something to do with that. And we also know, you know, I'm quite interested in ageing in women and we know that oestrogen is protective of muscle, helps us build muscle. It's anabolic, um, whereas progesterone is more catabolic. So, you know, you've got that rising level of oestrogen that you're training with that's helping you to build more muscle and helping you to hold on to strength. So it makes sense to go with that flow as well and try and make sure you're training on those days when we've got a lot of oestrogen. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, maybe this is a good time just to point a little bit to where some of the theory comes from surrounding the menstrual cycle and either fluctuations in performance or any um, theory that says like, oh, maybe it's better to strength train, you know, during the follicular phase. And like you said, estrogen is um, sort of associated with um, muscle gain uh, and, and sort of bone density gain, but also like cognition. Um, and yeah, like you said, it's sort of that anabolic protein. Progesterone has a lot of different features as well, though it is thought to be more like catabolic, which leads to this theory that maybe strength gains are not as prominent in that second half of your cycle, or maybe you need to try and do some things to mitigate some of the um, mechanisms that maybe progesterone plays into. Um, But I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the menopause because one thing coming back to that sort of stigma surrounding the menstrual cycle, I think that people sometimes I feel like female sex hormones get a bad rep. <laughs> like oh, totally. they change throughout the menstrual cycle and they only cause all these negative symptoms that we may experience in certain phases or for a number of days in this whole cycle. Whereas actually they're really protective. And I think what could be an interesting exercise for people to do is look at some of the symptoms and changes that occur during the menopause when these hormones fall off. And then maybe you'll really get a slightly more positive affinity towards them because they are really like a great part of our keeping our health and our cognitive sort of sharpness, our memory, our motivation, um, and as well as like that kind of uh, muscle mass and things that play into, you know, sport performance. Oh, definitely. Um, Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I'd love to take 10 years off my age right now so that I was closer to puberty and less close to the other end. But um, by the the time I get to the menopause part, I'm going to know so much about the research and so much about what you can do to try and preserve muscle strength, cognition, all of that sort of stuff that I'm going to be an expert. And we'll have about 10,000 podcasts that I will listen to of myself talking when I'm having a bad day. But I think um, one other thing that is interesting about progesterone, because, you know, 
so, I mean, I don't know if everybody does, but I I want to eat chocolate just before my period. And when we look at it, um, progesterone is actually, now I'm going to forget the word, um, it makes us, it's not insulin resistant, but it kind of almost, it downregulates glucose metabolism a little bit. And yeah. we live in a carb-hating world right now. Personally, in our household, we love carbs. We love sourdough bread. But there's definitely a trend in Australia, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, to people avoiding carbs. And as people age, if they're trying to shift weight, carbs are the first thing that they will want to kick out. But carbs in that second half of your cycle, so carbohydrates, um, can actually help mitigate the the sugar cravings that you're going to have and the potential um, impact of progesterone that can happen around training too. So I think it's really important that um, for that second half of your cycle, you try and make sure that training sessions are fueled really well, that when you're at the cliff, you're fueling really well. So that means having a little bite of your sandwich every time you come to the ground or having a sip of whatever, you know, you might take your protein shake with you and it's made on milk or it's got some sort of carbohydrate part in it. It's not just straight protein. So that you're topping up that carb through your session because it's going to help with the hormone impact at that time too. Yeah, the phrase I've heard, which sort of has felt useful to me, um, is that when progesterone is high in that second um, half of the cycle, um, it is a glycogen sparing mode. I think that's like the a, just a term, a phrase that's out there to help us picture what this kind of metabolic state that we're in might be. And yeah, essentially, we might lean a little bit more towards fat metabolism and a little bit away from glycogen metabolism. And intuitively, you might think that means you should eat less carbs and more fat. Mm. But for a sport like climbing, that is very high intensity. We will rely to a reasonable extent on um, our anaerobic systems to, um, you know, do our sport. And so we really want to make sure we provide our bodies with that um so yeah that the fuel needs to go in the that tank. system because you know mm. if we actually eat less carbs and more fats then you really lean towards that aerobic system which in general is used for like lower intensity exercise mm. so i think that um sort of just going back to that study that looked at that distribution between of training where there was more gains when they focused strength training in the first half of the cycle in the second half of the cycle, you still you then maybe just want to do everything you can to support your strength training or strength performances, which climbing often are. And like you said, yeah, making sure that you actually get in those carbs around your training is one of the things that you can do to to help that. So when you're actually, if to give a practical example of what um, a training phase might look like for someone, so you know, for people, I mean, we love training. So, you know, like the, th the three of us, and I'm sure you, Ollie and you at home talk training all the time. And we're like, oh, we're doing some strength training or doing some hangs or we're doing endurance or circuits. You know, that terminology is pretty um, easy for us to switch in and out of. But to give a bit of a practical overview of an average month, what, what how would you describe that? Um, yeah, so as obviously, as you said there, like I, um, we all love training. And when it's 
comes to the menstrual cycle, I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about um, my cycle, how it impacts my climbing and training and what to do there. But I think before we do a few examples, what could actually be useful for um, people is maybe to take a little step back and go through the process from the very beginning. So the research is obviously a good place to start in terms of getting an idea of the actions of these hormones and maybe the things that we do know and the things we don't. But ultimately, like, I don't know. We sort of talked about some of the holes in the research. Do I think that we'll ever get a study that will like conclusively say like you should do this on this day of your cycle? Probably not. And if we did and it didn't match with my experience, what would I do? Um, And so I think a really good place to start is um, just to cover a little bit about tracking and how someone might actually get to know their cycle and how it impacts their climbing and training because I know we've touched on it many times how um how much individual variation there is when it comes to the cycle and this kind of goes back to those different hormones we talked about the levels of them the amount of receptors different people have in different areas of their body um the ratio of estrogen progesterone so many factors that are way too complicated for me to understand um but what we have now, um, you know, in the 2022 in the world of apps and everything being mm-hmm. on your phone is the ability to monitor our cycles and to make note of things like the days where we're experiencing menstruation. Uh, so you obviously start to get the cycle length. And that is a really useful thing to be able to monitor when it comes to um, health and energy availability um, and red S. And then we also can look at like our flow and the length of our period. And again, we can look to see if that changes over time. Um, Again, that more plays into sort of health as an athlete. But then we can also look to um, record symptoms. So most apps have some sort of preset symptoms, I guess the more common ones. I know my, my Garmin reminds me all the time. Record your symptoms for your cycle. I'm like, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to record them. It's bad enough experiencing them today. Go away, watch. And yeah, yeah, them which off. Is, yeah, which is a really good point, really, that you make. So yeah, um, tracking you can track symptoms, or you might actually then want to monitor climbing events. I would almost call them like so. If a session didn't go to plan, if you really struggled to hit the level you wanted to in a session, or if you chose not to do it, you know you. These are all things you might just look to observe on and then over time, see if there's a pattern between those events and symptoms and your menstrual cycle. You can then ask yourself, okay, did these impact my climbing, uh, you know, performance or enjoyment or, you know, psychology? And then you can, you know, it gives you this really clear pathway of the changes that you could make and the informed decisions you could make that will have a positive outcome for you yeah um and I think while we're talking about that um we need to remember to talk about the contraceptive pill later but I think some other things just at the start of your cycle when you're tracking your actual bleeding understanding what heavy bleeding means so to be really explicit how many tampons are you using or how many menstrual cups are you filling up and how frequently are you changing them because Um, If you have, I have a copper IUD to just tell everyone way too much information. It makes my period heavy. And I 
that then I end up with chronic iron deficiency as a result of that. So, you know, is that, um, and I didn't realise what a heavy period was because, you know, it's very manageable and it's only for a day that it's really particularly heavy and, yeah, it's very manageable. It's not like I have to stay home or anything. Um, but if if you if you don't want to talk to a friend about it, ask your GP what heavy means and, you know, how many tampons an hour or every couple of hours, how often you're changing those things so you understand it because then you can work out if, you've got iron deficiency because your period's too heavy or you're not eating well or if there's some low energy availability happening um, or if there's something dietary going on that you're missing out on or you've got un- underlying things like celiac disease or something that's causing an iron deficiency thing happening instead. Yeah, and I think it's um, an important point there because maybe we can chat a little bit about the health side of things, just slot that in there before we turn back to the more like performance side and training because um monitoring your cycle can really I mean I've heard people talk about the menstrual cycle as a barometer of health and in a body weight dependent sport it could be a really useful thing to monitor um to sort of give people a a sort of overall view of their their hormonal health and their energy availability but it is important to note that um yeah a heavy period can be a sort of a sign of lower energy availability as well as a lighter period or longer cycle it seems to work at both ends of the the spectrum there mm, that's interesting i hadn't heard about the heavier period part with that um so and i think I- sorry i was just going to i think if i'm right again this is um we're we're sitting slightly more in the realm of health so i would always suggest people go to their doctor um but you build up your womb lining and then um you look to hold it there and actually this is a bit of a balance between estrogen and progesterone in that you don't want to overbuild womb lining so there's usually a building as well as a kind of um the hormones also look to just build only enough and i think if you drop one level of hormone you can almost overbuild your womb lining mm. and then end up with a really heavy period. Mm. So I think it's a bit more of maybe a hormone imbalance thing than maybe low low energy availability. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think um, there's a couple of things that I've seen because I work with um, eating disorders in climbing and eating disorders outside of climbing with just the general public. And um, things like the oral contraceptive pill, I know that climbers can often skip their period as often as they can (laughs) because they don't want to have it Um, or with um, the IUD the marina IUD I think do you have the same in the UK the marina that has a low dose hormone in it and so you can just some people will not get a period after a while and so some of the athletes I work with I get them to do the ovulation tracking because you do actually end up ovulating with the marina you just don't notice it as strongly unless you're really in tune and you should be ovulating. So you, you might not want to obviously get the marina out and see if your period's okay, but you can track with the ovulating and just see if that is actually happening to make sure that you're okay if your weight's sitting a bit low. And that can be, you know, one way of checking in as well, just to make sure there's no low energy availability and changes happening like that. Yeah, this is where I think um, the Clue app, uh, I've tried a number of apps, but it's quite a good app when it comes to contraception, like it has some good information on there because something I'm often asked is whether all this tracking and menstrual cycle information applies to someone who is using a hormonal form of contraception. And 
the answer, as always, <laughs> is like it depends. Um, as you've mentioned with the marina coil, um, it does seem like the cycling hormones in the blood so the hormones we're talking about the endogenous hormones the ones you make in your body um in the blood they actually continue to cycle in this phasic way that looks like uh, the hormone profile of a, of a menstrual cycle so people may experience the symptoms that go with that and the pattern but as you said they may not always have a period some people do as well um but once you go to sort of the oral combined pill the bleed that people experience there is is a bit different and actually experiencing that bleed is not indicative necessarily of a healthy energy availability because it's a withdrawal bleed so it's it's often not termed a period because the because the dose is high because you have to ingest it and obviously you process that each day you pass some amount out you uh, i think the um the things that I have seen on it um, show that actually that hormone profile within your blood uh, looks quite different in that it downregulates the production of your endogenous hormones, the ones that you make in your body, because you're providing these synthetic versions. Yeah, totally. And I think it's it's quite interesting for people that um, that want to see what that graph looks like. So, you know, when you Google the menstrual cycle and you get to see the the different lines for progesterone, estrogen, um, luteinizing hormone and those sorts of things. Um, it's interesting to look at what it looks like with different um, oral contraceptive pills and then compare it to the marina. And I think it depends on your choice of contraception is based around so many things, it's such a personal decision. You know, if you've got um, different hormone disorders happening in your body, so PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, or you've got some um, endometriosis happening, those sorts of um, disorders, then a the pill might be helpful to try and regulate things and are really necessary. Um, but then something like the marina that lets your body have its natural levels of things, I think can be quite a good option just because you get to have that natural cycle happening in your body. But yeah, I think it's very much worth people looking at the different graphs of what your hormones do um, for if you were a person that worked on that robotic 28 day cycle and ovulated at day 14, look at the oral contraceptive pills and the different um, graphs in those situations as well and then really talk to your gynecologist or doctor about what the best option is for you and your life yeah and I'll I'll provide a link um, for you guys so that you could put it in the show notes Ella a coach at Lattice did a podcast with um, a doctor on this a doctor and a sports physiologist together um, because we were asked about it so much but don't it, it's not really something we talk I mean I would talk to someone about it but it's it's always still along the lines of here is some things that I want you to go and look at and you should talk to your doctor because there's obviously loads of different reasons that people might go for a certain choice of contraceptive um so I'll provide that link because it was yeah it was a really useful um conversation yeah that'd be fantastic I think people would absolutely love to hear that hear about that side of it as well Okay, so Clue, yes, for tracking. I use Clue as well. I find that a great app to use, even if it's just as simple as, yes, period started, period stopped, next one due on the state. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it can be as simple as that and you are just prepared. It just it just <laughs> gives you a really easy reminder of the date that you're due on your next period. Um, I am never so, yeah. prepared. And every month <laughs> I am always looking for a tampon. That is the truth. And Tom says to me, hasn't this been happening for a long time now? How can you not have any? And 
But, you know, that drop in estrogen that happens takes my brain away and then I just Suddenly forget. Amanda's sat on the toilet and I hear, Tom, can you, look can in you my... go up to the shop and get some tampons? Well, that's yep. after I've rifled through every climbing pack and training bag to see if there's anything in them. Oh, that's funny. I'm the opposite. I've got this thing that Ollie calls the tampon tower in the bathroom. <laughs> 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 um, so that's just something that that has helped me with, you know, if you just planning you're just just like really useful it's it's taking away that unknown and just feeling a bit more informed about your body and where you're at and I think that that on a really kind of pretty basic level like you don't have to worry too much about your climbing or your training that can be really useful and I've spoken to people um the way I sort of visualize it is this this there's this path um, that sort of occurs in chronological order and you can get off this path at any point that you want if you've reached a level where you think oh cool, that's actually been really informative for me. And any more than that, in terms of thought and mental effort, is a bit overwhelming and feels not worth it. And that's fine. So they can get off there. So someone might track, have their dates and think, cool, I feel a bit more prepared when I'm making my plans. And I feel a bit less anxious around it because I just I just know on my phone when my period is going to start. And that's, that's great. And I think then you can go a step beyond that. And you can think, okay, I've actually over a six month period, realized that these symptoms form this really regular pattern. And I can, I now want to try and make slightly more informed decisions about what I do during that time or those days, such that I have a sort of a net positive experience. Like that's, I guess that's where, why we look to make informed decisions about what we do at any given time. I listened to this podcast with a coach and he talked about this thing called predictive coding, which I thought was a really interesting concept and really makes sense to me in that our brain is a very predictive organ. You know, we think it's there really just telling us about everything that happens in the moment, but really it's always projecting because survival is about not necessarily what happens today. It's about what happens tomorrow and next week. And it's all about budgeting, energy budgeting in our body. Um, But with this in sport, where it's interesting is that someone might think, oh, like, yeah, when I, a few days before my period, I, I do feel rubbish, but I go climbing anyway. Oh yeah, I often have a terrible time. You know, I get really scared on my project or I feel really powered down and I slog through my bouldering session. And that that might be fine for them, but actually I think it's interesting to realise that that could have a knock-on predictive effect for how you feel going into other sessions or for your next day at the crag. And I think that's where making informed decisions about what you do based on information you've gained from yourself can be really powerful for just that consistency that a lot of us are looking for in in climbing. That that net positive experience, I'm going to put that up there with... um, that's gold. It's a, along the hold your, hold your goals lightly and the net positive experience because that's brilliant. It's not about, um, you know, deciding you're going to walk away from a session because you've got your period and that's really boring. It's trying to create a net positive experience based on your observations about your cycle, how you feel, and then how you get the best out of yourself and the best out of your life on those particular days. So, uh, yeah, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, and I think it it hopefully, I feel like it alludes to the fact that the difference on a one-off session might feel small, but actually over time, months, years, climbing is such a, a life, a sport, 
that all those little scenarios right, might really add up to have quite a big significant effect on on someone's climbing and their experience of it um and you know I, I think when you track and you sort of create this sort of an idea of this pattern your body goes through and you link that to experiences for example you see that you're two days before your period or you're on the first day of your period and you're like oh yeah my climbing sessions are actually often they don't they don't go as well here um you also build up this body literacy because you link the two. So there's maybe how you felt a bit before that session or whilst warming up. And then because you can monitor the actual outcome afterwards as well, you allow this reflection process. Um, and I feel like it links in the cues that your body gives you to a potential outcome. And you can obviously still make the choice to do that session and, and maybe it'll go well. Maybe it won't, you know, you don't know. But you could also make the informed decision to do something different, change the RPE. I guess we might talk about some of the different things you could do. But essentially, you make a different choice based on that. And yeah, I, I guess I have personally found that over time, you know, months, the years that I've been doing it now, I think that those informed decisions have really added up. Yeah, and, and that you're just talking to, to the end of... Uh essentially changing the goal of a session and it may be that the weekend's coming around and and that time is coming up and it's like well I still want to get out on the rock maybe I'm just going to do uh, have a different goal on my project like refining sequences or rather than getting on my project I'm just gonna run some laps and just generally enjoy being out with some friends and enjoying the outdoors and and give myself that break so that you're not bashing your head against the wall having a horrible time yeah yeah for sure it's about optimizing the climbing of the experience so I think that's often a nice way to put it because optimization is like getting the most out of that day and allowing you to really hit whatever intention you have set yourself um yeah so for example if you go um on your project at the weekend the intention or goal could be to to link it and it might be at that given time in your cycle that that is a bit less accessible or harder to achieve or more overwhelming, whatever, um, whatever number of things that it could be. But you could change that intention such that it's easier to hit and it's the right challenge level for that given day. And I think something that I think is quite useful for people to do um, is really try and think of the low hanging fruit. So I think it can be very overwhelming. You know, there's so many symptoms out there and they also could be nothing to do with your menstrual cycle. <laughs> they could be to do with the fact that you're really tired from work. And so I think some people find thinking, starting to think about the menstrual cycle and the decisions that they might make, you know, about changing the intention for a session, quite overwhelming because you can't change everything in your life around your cycle. Um, so I always think picking the low hanging fruit um, which is just the things, the changes you can make that have the biggest impact is is where people want to start. So that could be doing um, to do with like red pointing, and that might be where where people um, focus. It could be just to do with um, bloating. It could just be to do with cramps, um, and you know maybe try this one thing and work to that first, so that it's not such an overwhelming, um, yeah, sort of starting point. 
Yeah, definitely. You don't have to re- redesign your whole training plan based around um, five days of the month necessarily, but it's about, I think um, you and I were chatting a couple of days ago about um, having a couple of substitute, like if you are if you are someone that plans your training or you're working with your coach, having your, your substitute training sessions or your substitute plans at the cliff that you can literally just look in your training book and go, ah, okay, I was going to do a limit session on the moon board, but actually I'm going to do repeats on the V3s and it, that's just what I'm going to do. I'm going to do all the benchmark V3s, try and do all of them two or three times and I'm going to have two minutes rest between them and and that's my session for the day yeah yeah totally so I think um a bit like Tom said with the red pointing and you said with the training the same sort of decision making can occur um in both scenarios so you know you might be someone that doesn't do any uh, structured training necessarily or you're just in an outdoor season and you can use the information to make the sort of decision on intention around a given day like Tom said you could uh work um easier sections or you could do mileage or you might choose that not to go climbing I think this is a slightly unpopular view whatever but as also when it comes to the menstrual cycle I think people don't like to feel like it's holding them back or it's a reason to not do anything and and I completely um see that perspective but I also think alongside looking to make adjustments and informed decisions in what you might do I think it's good to realize that not doing something can be really powerful as well and actually so really powerful. empowering. Yeah. I think if you look at, like I've been climbing since 1995, so what year is it? We're coming up to 27 years in the middle of this year, I think. I always have to count because I can never remember what that adds up to. Um, but if you think about your climbing, for anyone who's just started climbing and if you love it, you might think that you will stop one day. You won't. You will be doing it still in 20 odd years time because it's some sort of weird lifestyle thing that you can't get away from. And if you think about all of those years of climbing, sometimes you just need to not go. You know, you need to go. I'm not feeling it today. I'm not going to push against that feeling, get my bag packed and then push to get in the car, push to get to the cliff, push to get on the route. And it's just and giving yourself that day off will pay dividends year after year because it just gives you the day to be fresh and you know get get re-motivated I know that Tom will often take a couple of weeks off every year completely from climbing and I it used to make me really anxious actually we've been together for I think 10-ish years now and the first couple of years that he did that I think what are you doing you can't take two weeks off from climbing where's your psych and motivation but um but actually I think it holds you in good stead when you when you walk away for that day and give yourself the break and are just a bit kinder to yourself. I love that what you were saying before, just optimizing. It's about and that's such a better like mental shift to feel empowered in that decision. It, yeah, really, really good. Yeah, it's not like if you choose to still go on your project or do that training session during a, the phase of your cycle when you don't feel as good. It's not to say you won't get anything from that. That's yeah. the, I think and, that's what that's the takeaway and I think that's where it's a good balance to strike for people you know talking about that path and where people might choose to get off and stop they they will still have gained something through just understanding it and simply because they don't make those decisions doesn't mean they're gonna not make any gains in that training session just because they did it on day two of their cycle um yeah yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important, actually, that we clarify that and say where the research is currently at and where from 
the knowledge Maddie and I have of the research and our experiences in our careers, we don't think that any time in the future you're going to have an answer that says day one to seven, you will get 50% more strength gains if you train then compared with the other end of your cycle because of the individuality between people and um, and the complexity of climbing as a sport. And so there's still we still need to get a really good knowledge of what our own bodies like to do, what our psychological state is around that and build a climbing life that works for us as individuals, would you say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but I guess the things that we're talking about now, or I could just run through some of the ideas and things that I've tried, are they still sit on the side that says, okay, I might still get something if I do this now, if I continue, but could there be a better outcome, a slightly better um, thing that I could do right now, such that I am making the most effective use of my time in this point in my cycle? So we sort of talked about it from a climbing perspective, like maybe making some decisions on the crag that you go to, um, and this could be for the style of climbing, you know, the angle of the rock, or it could be, oh, that crag's actually always really busy and that makes me a bit more anxious at this time. So actually, maybe I'm better off going to a slightly quieter crag, even though there's a route I want to try at that busy crag. Um, maybe it's doing a little bit of fall practice to get you into the day at a time when you're more anxious or just realising that you are not like fully powered up for these couple of days. Um, and that's a good point to emphasize. I think most people I've spoken to when they track for six months, they also get this understanding that actually it's not that many days that they might want to make some of these choices around, um, which which I think can be really useful and powerful. Um, but from a more training um, perspective, if people are doing a more structured plan, uh, either with a coach or they write it themselves, which I know loads of people do, because that can be really fun. Um, there are a few things that people could do and they can either look to monitor and modify RPE. And so this is your perceived effort when you do something. So it may be that during the first few days of your period, for example, your perceived effort of a given exercise is higher um, than it was the week before in a different part of your cycle. And so you might just look to change the difficulty of that exercise such that the RPE is correct. It's it's the same, but you're having to do your session on V3s instead of V4s, or you're having to do something body weight hangs instead of adding five kilos. Um, and I think that can be really useful. And there's a lot to say that RPE is actually a really good sort of gauge that you're hitting the right thing in your exercises and that you're bringing about the right changes in your body. But I think the one thing I have found with RPE, and this may totally be a bias for the people that I am in contact with, is if you've used a certain weight or difficulty in the week before, it can be frustrating to <laughs> dial that back. And so then you have to think, what type of person am I? And am I going to dial that back? Or am I actually just going to really try my hardest to hit what I was doing the week before and walk away completely exhausted, frustrated, um, and maybe even feeling a bit niggly, you know, because you've actually totally, um, you might have just overdone it a bit. And so I think if you are that sort of person, 
instead what could be um some things to think about would be alternate things like you said um though that still requires making a choice to not do for example your anaerobic capacity climbing session you know say boulder triples and instead actually maybe to do it on the fingerboard where it's simple and you just you know hit the timer you do the exercise and you walk away and you didn't need to have much complexity of the movement coordination you didn't have to think about it that much um often people report finding simple training exercises easier but you know those do both involve a decision um which i i always think is an interesting thing for people to navigate i know tom's just been tapping me on the leg and grinning <laughs> affectionately at me patting as if, <laughs> as if you are speaking to me and i have to say to anybody listening that hasn't worked with a coach i've had coaches at different times in my climbing and it takes the decision making away from you i mean you're always you're part of the decision making in your training plan always when you're working with a coach Um, as much or as little as you want to but having a coach help you to work out how what what to do in that session so you know I think when you're trying to make a decision for yourself and you're like I was going to do a limit boulder and then and then I was going to do this many circuits and then I was going to campus and do 20 kilo deadlift not deadlifts weighted pull-ups and and then you think oh no I need to dial it back to a hang Um, if a coach has told you that that session is great and equivalent for that time, you have more confidence in it and it takes that um, your own headspace out of it, I think. I think one of the most underrated things or benefits of having a coach is accountability and that would be one of the things that comes out of that is like if that's been programmed in, if you've had that conversation with your coach and they've programmed in that, you know, you're accountable to not only yourself but to your you know, external um, motivator as well, your external person there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's someone to explain their choices to you as well. Um, that's something that I really find satisfying in the job is I really want people to understand why I have given them what I've given them. Um, and so then I guess that leads us to a more prescriptive approach, which might work for some people. It works well for me because I if you give me an inch, I'll take a mile. You know, if I like say, oh, I'll do, I'll just spend more time warming up and I'll do a short session, you know, because I'm premenstrual and actually I find I basically, I actually sleep really badly um, in about the three days before my period. So that's my personal experience. That and bloating are the things that they're just always there and they both impact my training and my performance. So I actually schedule a deload week around that time such that I just feel I can make the most of the rest of my cycle. Um, So I guess for people who are listening and thinking, what is a deload week? Um, In more structured training, often there is some cycling between heavier loaded weeks and lighter loaded weeks, such that you apply a training stimulus and then you, you need the time to recover from it. That is where we make adaptations. And then hopefully there is what is often called super compensation, but you know, um, you go back to the same exercise and it feels easier or you can do it at a higher intensity for example um and given that this is something that we do anyway can we just put that in line with the menstrual cycle at a point where someone feels that their training is um you know impacted and i guess this is kind of in line with that study that looks at the distribution of training And from a coaching, in the coaching world, I've seen the term gain then maintain used quite a lot. So you use the majority of your cycle, say you've got a 28 
day cycle use that first three weeks to um you know do that game bit you are training and then you do a deload week which is a bit more about consolidating just maintaining over that recovering and then you go into the the next cycle and you know that is something that anecdotally we have found quite a lot of people um have benefited from that does mean that deload week what people do in a rest week or deload week um can look very different person to person as well as obviously what stage they're at in their training if they're in the lead up to a performance phase you might use it to to check in on a project even um personally i have used this deload week i i really go for that maintain approach consolidating at what i've done in the previous weeks not looking to check in with my performance just because I don't think that my performance would be maybe the best representation uh, that it could be. Um, You know, I I tend not to do max testing in my deload weeks or people that I work with who who, um, would like to try this structure as well because the reason we've put the deload week there is because they feel like maximal efforts are a little bit harder to access. Um, so yeah, I, I personally have tried that structure, feel like it works well for me and find that, yeah, what do I mean by consolidate? So, you know, say you've been working on certain different, um, stimulus in your training weeks, you know, that align with your goals. I look to not go for something wildly different from those. I, I'm still looking to play into those different, um, sort of intensities, but I tend to do it, dial it back a bit such that I am just being consistent. My rate of failure is not high in that week. So for example, I might have a limit bouldering session a week because strength and power is definitely something I need to work on. I don't have one of those in my deload week and instead I do just timed reps on things that are probably just either a flash level or just above flash and I just really dial in on my execution and my pace in those and I tend not to fail on on any sets or reps um yeah so that that's just something that I found useful oh that's perfect I think that gives people a really good example to sort of build off and um yeah I think that explains it really well I love the example of um not having your limit session um and not doing your testing in that time. And it's funny you say that because I haven't done much testing for a while and I did do some testing at the start of this year, or was it the end of last year, because I was interested. Um, and it was, I think, three days before my period was due. And so I made note of that with the, um, with the testing I was doing. But I think that's an interesting question to ask you is where would you, where would you stick some testing? You know, would it be um, just before you ovulate, like kind of the mid-follicular phase or or um, the end of the follicular phase when you're going to ovulate or like when would you generally program that in? So I guess there's a few different options here. Like you said, you um, did some testing three days out from your period and you just made note of that. So people could do that if they want. I would just probably look for consistency so that if you are going to do a retest in the future, you might just want to take that into account when you did it. And if you are going to know, I'll test in the follicular phase when I know I'll definitely be stronger. So it'll look like I've made even more gains. Yeah. Um, And I guess the thing I think about with testing beyond just the performance in the test is that I may use testing for myself or with others to um, prescribe loads in following weeks. So if you test at a time 
um, where you may not hit the highest weight for you that you could achieve, then you might under-prescribe weights. In the same, if you test at a time where you're like, gosh, I just feel like on fire at this point in my cycle, but then you prescribe weights for the rest of your cycle, you might even overdo it a little bit. So I think that's just something that's worth thinking about in terms of where you put it. Personally, I tend to do it in the early stage of my follicular phase. So I might deload around sort of just the few, you know, back end of my cycle. So very premenstrual. First few days of my period, generally pretty bloated. I have like actually weighed myself and I it fluctuates a, a fair amount. Literally, my stomach is like a dome. So um once that goes down, so I'm, I may still be uh, bleeding, experiencing my period, but I, I often feel fine after the mm. first two days. And that would also just happen to coincide with coming out of a deload phase, hopefully being quite well rested. Um, and I find that the weights that I set from that sort of, from testing there seem to play out quite well in that they feel, feel very achievable for the rest of my training cycle. Um, so so yeah, that's where I might like personally look to to put mine. But I think it's sort of going back to what we said before, there's no definite right or wrong of where you put it. But if you feel like there's an impact on your testing, you might just want to think about it and think, Mm -hmm. okay, why am I putting it there? Why might I not put it here? I always think that's a useful thing, exercise that I do personally with the decisions I make. Why am I doing this? But also why am I not doing it a different way? Or why am I not doing something else? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really yeah good questions to ask yourself, and and the more we we talk on the podcast, the more it just um, it feels really motivating. And I mean, I've done tracking, and I'm really interested in this, but it just makes me want to spend the next six months really reflecting in my training journal about where I'm at in my cycle, actually getting a really good idea, like actually giving myself the time to work out what six months looks like, because that six months of effort will play out quite well for the next couple of years then with training and climbing. Yeah. And I think that's really nice to hear, you know, that it's, I hope that it is something that is a curiosity for people. You know, it's kind of like interesting. It's not worrying or, you know, something that they feel like is a burden. Um, And if it is that, maybe it's just not the right time for someone to do it, which is totally fine. But I think I've, what I've actually personally found for myself and what I try to talk to others about and the way I frame it is, I think I've actually found my menstrual cycle as a really good push in the right direction for really being really understanding what it means to hit a training stimulus that I've set myself. So I guess a lot of these adjustments that we have talked about, or maybe choosing to walk away from a session, it all boils down to the intention of that session and what it means to hit it. Um, So obviously in climbing, I feel like people are really into intensity and strength and power because we are a very you know, strength plays a massive role in performance in climbing. I, I totally get that. Um, but it does mean that you have to hit quite high intensity to be hitting the stimulus for that session and getting the adaptation you want. I mean, the stimulus isn't one tiny dot. It's obviously pretty broad for your body, but but you still need to be in that kind of 85% and up range, say, um, of intensity. Yeah. Whereas if you walk into a session, you warm up and you think, that intensity is going to be hard earned today or is not there I think it's understanding that there may be other training stimuluses that you can look to hit that might be easier to achieve but still really beneficial for your goal um Mm. 
so you know you might warm up and think you know what actually I will do my endurance today instead um you know and this is this comes down to being flexible um as well as understanding what your different sessions are looking to achieve and what level you need to hit to be getting the most out of them yeah yeah I think that's a great little yeah great little measure to think about and it's an interesting lens to look at your training through um yeah and your planning through and your goals through yeah I think it all boils down to it's the same process you guys have probably done it with yourselves for your personal training um you you've probably done it through nutrition Amanda I would imagine as well mm-hmm. where you follow this process that we all follow where you observe and then you kind of theorize you know you think oh yeah maybe this uh, this could be different maybe that could be different you intervene and then you just reassess a few months down the line and you see you think oh yeah maybe this has actually had a positive outcome I'm going to continue with this um which is sort of the whole process of training for climbing anyway (laughs) definitely yeah and, and that that idea of actually investing in that little bit of time um, experimenting with yourself and, and sticking to like tracking your, your cycle or, or sticking to a a training program within that. And this, you know, for, for men as well, like stick to a plan for a small, for a certain amount of time and see how it goes, because otherwise you can't really make an informed decision because there are so many other variables kicking about. And, and spending that time doing it is a really fun and awesome investment. Yeah, definitely. It's all a bit of an N equals one experiment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully like people, I think you mentioned a good point really at the end, Tom, because I know maybe when people see that it's a podcast about the menstrual cycle, you know, I imagine you lose X amount of people. Yeah. But, um, I think a lot of the approaches and underlying kind of um thinking is very you know it can really be extrapolated to a lot of different people I guess I and that's what I found I think looking more into my menstrual cycle understanding it and working my some of my like climbing and training around it I think I've just got a much better sense of my body and I think Mm -hmm. I just reflect on things a little bit more and put a bit more thought into my decision making in general. Hmm. I, I hope it doesn't sound too reductive me saying this, but it kind of just seems like you're given an opportunity to um, check in with yourself essentially and an opportunity to, to look after yourself better when you don't feel well. And yeah, yeah, it's definitely. It's always perfect, funny, isn't like, it? Yeah, and, and I think that it's it's too easy to not do that. But yeah, I, I know it, what you mean there. I think um, sometimes, like it's an an area, it's an area I find so interesting. I think it's really valuable to know about it. I think everyone should know about it. But actually, when you make it sound really simple, that's hopefully almost less overwhelming. And yeah, you're right. It's not really reductionist. It is actually just kind of true. <laughs> Yeah, take away all of the science. Like you were saying, you know, if we found out that a study said this, but that's not my experience, I'm not going to change my behavior. I'm still going to do what works for me. It's like, yeah, take away all of the the noise and nonsense and, and do what works for you. Yeah, and talk about it with people. Like a bit like you said, Amanda, I've benefited so much from talking about it with Ollie being really open about it, such that actually he can be really it allows someone to be really supportive and 
personally, I think that that alongside everything else has just really helped. Yeah, definitely. Um, and um, we'll definitely get together. Maddie and I will get some resources together that we'll put in the show notes so that um, people can find more information. Um, and where can people find you, Maddie? So you're on Instagram and people can find you at Lattice. So what's your Instagram handle? Yeah, it's Madeline underscore Cope. So uh, people can find me there. And yeah, I will share some resources with you, especially around some of the more complicated um, parts of this topic. Like we said, the contraceptives. Yep. Sounds amazing. Um, and then uh, Lattice has got a bunch of, it's got a YouTube channel and there's some um, podcasts as well that we'll put up that Lattice have been a part of um, that uh, give a little bit more information in this area too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, we've got a couple, I know it's like a whole different area, but I did um, a podcast that I thought was great with a coach out in America on sort of pregnancy and postpartum. And so I'll I'll pop that in there as well, just in case uh, thinking about the menstrual cycle makes people want to think, think about uh, other areas of, I guess, like the female athlete um, as well. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, we'll have to send you like some awesome Australian presents over to the UK to say thank you and to, <laughs> to, to con you into coming back onto the podcast and coming and climbing with me in Australia. Oh, yeah. No, don't worry. You don't have to con me. Yeah, we've, I've wanted to come to Australia for ages. And then I think it's just been COVID to be honest. You know, I, I guess there's I just not really been many big travel plans for years, but it's, yeah, it's definitely high, high on my list. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much for listening in. We really enjoy and appreciate having you here with us along the journey. If you found this helpful, absolutely share it around with your friends. I think there's some incredible tips and insights in there. And I think it's just awesome to to try and get that information out there so that everyone can just keep on having a totally awesome time in life and climbing. That's it from me. I hope I get to speak to you all sometime very, very soon. We've got some awesome podcasts lined up in the next few weeks. So keep your ears tuned on in. But that's it for now. Catch you next time. Thank you.